Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 65th episode of a podcast that is a celebration that is about board games. Uh, If you're not aware, board games are really good, card games are really good, Uh, role-playing games and party games are really, really good. They're undergoing a renaissance. I am so excited. I can't hide it. My name's Quentin Smith, and I am on the line to Paul Dean, who is a man who also cannot and has never been able to hide it. How's it going, Paul? I've never had an introduction like that before. It's it's going fine. Thank you. We've got so many board games to talk about. Uh, it says right here in front of me on this uh, Manila document that Paul has been playing Unearth, A Dog's Life, and Donna Dinner Party, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. which is, <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. I'll be surprised if... Well, no, I'm not going to say that. Let's let's just see what you have to say about them. Um, and meanwhile, I have been playing, uh, somewhat excitingly, the Splendor expansions. A Feast of Odin, uh, First Martians, and Legend of the Five Rings. And Yeah, I want to know about that. Well, uh, let me just quickly say, I won't be talking much about, uh, or really at all, about First Martians or Legend of the Five Rings. Two absolutely massive releases, so big that they took up uh, more of my time than any other reviews this year. And they're both on shutupandsitdown.com. Can we we can touch them briefly though, that's right. How would you like to touch um First Martians? In a circumspect can you touch something in a circumspect way? You know what I mean. Uh for the for the benefit of people who may not yet have seen the video or know much about it, just uh an an hors d'oeuvre, a starter, an appetizer, a uh, a taster. Well, the way I'd put it is, you know those um, sort of Schadenfreude headlines where uh, you know, like a footballer will drive their Ferrari into a, uh, a, a, a ditch, and you know everyone's okay, but it's like, yeah, they they bought a fancy car and they they and he, what did they do with it? They drove it into a ditch. Well, the First Martians is kind of like that. It is absolutely beautiful. It's so full of good ideas, and um, it. it really has difficult it 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 swerves and comes off the road um very early on in the review and the designers really struggle to um to redeem themselves it's the most negative review i feel like i've published in years and it was really heartbreaking to, to do yeah yeah really really tough it started with me not being able to learn the manual and um it didn't get much better from there um, something a lot more positive was Legend of the Five Rings, which was um, uh, I tell you what, talking about negative games doesn't half um, talking about negative reviews doesn't half sap your energy. Um, but yes, Legend of the Five Rings I liked a lot more. This is Fantasy Flight's new, uh, big, exciting, beautiful card game. But ultimately, while it was very, very clever, I just didn't have that much um, fun with it. Yeah, you weren't completely won over. And I consider that a bit of a stumbling block when, you know, collectible card games want you to, like, buy loads of cards and get really into them. And I don't want to spend, you know, or commit to a thousand hours playing something I don't enjoy that much. So here's a question immediately about this then. I mean, you at the present, if I'm right, you're not playing a great deal of Netrunner right now, but you have in the past. Yeah, that's correct. Is it possible that you can um, invest in really more than one or two of these anyway? Not so much money-wise, just energy-wise and understanding the system-wise? I mean, could you hypothetically, uh, if we're going to cast the net broader, could you <laughs> go wild about magic and also go wild about Pokemon Park? card game would you have enough time to master both i mean time is elastic right when people say i'm too i mean parents aside unless you're a parent you get a free pass but everyone else if they go ah i'm just too busy to to do something it's probably not true they're probably saying i don't want to do this enough um i think if legend of the five rings had been truly great then maybe someone could play netrunner and l5r um 
but uh, they have just this second announced they're rebooting the Netrunner core set. It's a better time to get involved in the game than it has been in months and months and months. So, yeah. you know, it's just, a, it's just a hard sell. I would easily continue to uh, tell people to get stuck into the cyber crimes and cyber times of Netrunner than I would <laughs> the, uh, the fantasy world of Rocker Gun. Which, of course, if people well, would like to watch... Speaking of car crashes, um, mm-hmm. if people would like to go and read the comments on my review... We we got up to 380 comments and they had to be locked um yes um, if you'd lo- which is actually extremely rare for us but given that i think that there had been some discussion about the game and then there was the discussion about um conventions uh the way people speak at tournaments and the tradition of using certain phrases to open the tournaments and some people saying um although you may be okay with this to quite a lot of people this actually might be offensive Yes. And in fairness, most commenters were, were okay, and the, the general discussion was people uh, either learning things or uh, expressing their point of view. But you really only need like three or four people who have a very stark uh, opposite opinion to keep posting over and over again. Um, and then the people who would never turn up otherwise suddenly creating accounts and turning up and saying, well, I feel this way, even though I've never commented before, and happen to have the same idea. P address as this other person who I agree with, even though I'm definitely not them. Yeah, it was crazy. I think about of those 380 comments, I think at least 40 were from the same dude who uh, really, really didn't like the idea that um, this game was upsetting people. I mean, that was the the thing that was that that is always continually shocking is that um, when someone shows up in the comments of a game and says, "Hey," uh, if people aren't aware, there's an amount of chanting of the word "banzai" that goes on at Legend of the Five Rings tournaments, um, and that's happened uh, since the game was created in 1995 or six. Um, And some people showed up in the comments saying, actually, this upsets me. It reminds me of war crimes committed on my um, uh, ancestors or, you know, grandparents. Um, And that's fine. What you do not do in that instance is what a lot of commenters did, which was show up and go, I think you being offended is wrong. I think you being sad and upset is factually incorrect. Like, that is never going to change the fact that they're upset. When someone's upset, you listen to why they're upset, you say, I'm sorry, and you say, well, how can we, you know, fix this? You never tell people they're wrong. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. You you aren't really upset about this. Uh, no, I think I am. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, so, yeah. Um, First Martians and Legend of the Five Rings, two reviews that you should definitely uh, take a peek at because they, they're just... Can I think- I... So, based on this, first of all, first of all, kind of briefly derail you because we haven't talked in person about the the Netrunner re-release and I actually want to get your opinions uh, on record in this format because I was surprised at this it's well it's not like a complete reboot though is it no so if people aren't aware Netrunner is a uh, collectible card game that is very 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 good it's very fun very entertaining it plays nothing like any uh, sort of trading card game that uh, I've ever played. It's a lot of secret information. One player is a company with servers, and another player is a hacker trying to break in. It's full of secret information. It's very playful, very joyous. And uh, Fantasy Flight have just announced that the core box, which you buy first, um, is going. It is being replaced by a new core box, which has most of the same cards. So all the old players don't have to buy a new core. 
Um, but God, you've really you've put me under the microscope here, Paul. So the, the no, this is interesting to me. Well, so the change is that um, all the cards have new art, which is nice, um, and all the characters have aged a little bit, um, which is nice. I mean, especially so because the Netrunner core box has some really cartoony art before they nailed down the um, the art style. Um, but uh, so Netrunner is going into rotation. God, I, I love the podcast to be accessible, and you've really thrown me into the deep end. Um, so Netrunner's I, going. As, I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's uh, it's totally it's totally good. So rotation is where cards from about three years ago, um, are, but no longer become relevant in tournaments. It enables the publisher to continue releasing new cards, which is what everyone wants, but without the card pool swelling to beyond about 1,500 cards. Um, because the game just gets more wobbly the more cards you add yeah um so what they've done with the new core set is they have removed the most uh, in their opinion egregious cards basically cards that were mistakes before the designers really knew how the game worked um and replaced yes. them with some of the cards that people thought were going out when rotation begins in october so the new core set is uh, most of the same cards, but some cards removed and some cards uh, that people thought were being removed but are now not being removed or with nice art. So in October, when rotation happens the, and the new core set comes in, the game's going to be shaken up even more than um, than we thought. And of course, this is leading to me and my other friends who've stopped playing Netrunner recently because we considered the game had just gotten too wobbly. Um, are we going to start playing Netrunner again? And the answer seems to be everyone I've spoken to who's left Netrunner looks at the new court and go and says oh this is really cool and then oh but I'm not going to go and play Netrunner again it's like it's very nice yeah but getting back it but getting back interesting uh, returning to a card game you've let lapse means you have to buy like hundreds of pounds worth of cards and you have to catch up on so much of the matter and you're like I mean, right how can I explain this it seems like you know once you get off that train in most cases, you don't get back on again. Yeah, um, there's a principle in uh, I like professional games that's also the same as in, you know, uh, <laughs> to use uh, an awkward analogy, um, drug use. Um, are you aware of the idea that you can never get as high as you once were? <laughs> no, I, I am not. Okay, well, it's something that is you know taken into account when you're dealing with people who are going through addiction and rehabilitation, whereby people continue to chase highs that they cannot get. And the thing with the idea of going back and playing a card game is it will never be as magical as it was when you were first getting into it. You'll never get your ignorance back. You'll never get that small card pull back. You'll never get your friends that you met then and there back. Um, so... It's it's kind of an imp- impossible position for a publisher to be in. Um, I think probably the only thing that would make me return to Netrunner, aside from some luminous design or some like a doubling of the investment that Fantasy Flight put into it, which they won't because I don't think it sells that well. I think a complete reboot of the game would be required. Some like you know Netrunner 2.0, like they did with um, the their Game of Thrones card game, um, whereby they just set fire to everything and said, okay, the whole card pool's dead. And we're going to make the entire game again and fix all the mistakes and make a better game. That is... I, I feel sad about this, though, because there's so many card games out there now. There is... Uh, we just talked about L5R. There's that Game of Thrones card game that you mentioned. Netrunner is... I'm not crazy about these games, but Netrunner is actually something I've enjoyed myself and really appreciated the way it's designed. And it, it feels still that we're talking about something that's kind of ephemeral and impermanent and people are going to play these things for a while and inevitably have to 
peel away from the pack somehow that, that it's not sustainable in terms of you know stimulation that unlike something like i don't know chess if you get really into chess and you play it all your life you stick with that it feels like it's a doomed romance that will never last your lifetime well how's this for food for thought all romances are doomed all romances end with either a couple breaking up or you know someone dying or them both dying um and you know one of the reasons Netrunner was so exciting is because you know you never knew what was around um, each corner Um, they've just announced the new cycle of expansions which takes the game to Africa um, which is really exciting and continues the diversity that Netrunner's always championed because of course there was a pack that um, took the game to India um, recently Um, and I was looking at this announcement about the um, the Saharan sort of pack and uh, or sub-Saharan rather um, and I was remembering when they first announced the Netrunner expansion that was taking the game to the moon the moon Paul um, yes yeah. and it, was, it was so exciting and my, my wife and I were both playing the game at the time and I woke her up and I said baby baby we're going to the moon <laughs> um, that's a true story uh, and the thing is if you want to have that degree of excitement you're going to doom your game because in, you know the more expansions come out either the expansions stop coming out and that's bad or they keep coming out and then you inevitably break the game um it's okay to love and and lose is what i'm saying netrunner was great and is still great loads and loads of people still enjoy it are still making expansions we're talking about this like it's a dead game just because i don't play it anymore um but my point is that uh not everything is eternal sometimes things are really good for a while and that is still great and still to be loud and still to be enjoyed and we can be sad that netrunner whatever it means to us passes but we can also be happy that it ever existed that is fair enough i feel i feel bad now for derailing you i feel bad for raising this topic i feel bad about the the transient nature of life and relationships (laughs) you know what those are all okay things to feel bad about I'm gonna, if you like, I'm gonna talk about A Dog's Life now, which is probably the game that is the exact opposite of Netrunner. Are you ready? Well, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm not, well, I'm kind of ready, but first you have to tell people, um, well, I know. Do you want to pitch the game to me first and then tell the people at home who designed it? Okay, right. So, so I didn't know this. I didn't know this. This is actually complete news to me, and I my life is slightly different now to what it was a moment ago. <laughs> this is designed by the same guy who did Archipelago, which is I hope I'm going to say his name correctly, uh, Christopher Bollinger mm. or Bollinger, or uh, because he is a French person. And Archipelago is a fairly complex. Uh, you're a game of settling a bunch of different islands as you might expect and doing things like building towns and harvesting resources and spreading your influence kind of economically rather than militaristically yeah Uh, there's a lot of different things going on it's not too complicated but it's very good and we really really liked it when we reviewed it i actually played it again a few months ago and still really liked it oh it's it's just the craziest thing (laughs) okay a dog's life it's wonderful no it's great and i think it's aged really well and it's like the complete opposite of a dog's life which is i think actually like a reboot of a game that's now about 16 years old from 2001 but it's it's almost just a roll and move game it's not quite you just move some dogs around a town and you get bones and uh, everybody has a different dog uh, and you 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 rummage in bins you go to restaurants and you scrounge and you beg for food and the thing is it is 
so much lighter it is so much sillier and it is kind of somewhat random but it's I mean, I'm not going to say I recommend it, but it's quite good, actually, because, first of all, are you ready? Do you know anything about this? I, what, a dog's life? No. I, I thought you were asking if I knew anything about dogs. Um, but, uh, which or I, either. Well, not really, no. But So hit me with your best shot. Uh, I'll, I'll let someone else explain dogs in like the comments of this, <laughs> but I'll go straight into, into the game. Um, each dog's got a, a different deck of cards. And they're right. all uh, slightly different decks. And the idea is that when you attempt to do something, which is fight another dog or run away from the dog catcher who sort of drives around town trying to catch people or, you know, you rummage in a bin for a bone, you draw a card from your deck and it shows you, you cross-reference that particular action and it'll show you uh, what happened and whether you were successful. And sometimes that can be... Things like you uh, you went to a restaurant, you asked for food, and somebody actually gave you two scraps of food. Or they did give you a bone. Or maybe they didn't at all and you failed. Um, or you fought a dog and you both draw cards and it turns out one of you did better than the other. So, you know, that person scares the other dog away. And all of these are weighted differently. So some of the dogs are better at scrounging. Some are better at uh, looking in bins. Some are better at fighting each other. Some are better at running away. And so immediately, depending upon which dog you play, as you run around this town trying to find bones, you're going to be better at some things than others. Also, although you move around this board in a... You've got a predetermined amount of speed that you move. Initially, the the board's very open and all you dogs go everywhere. And if you see one another, you bark at each other and scare each other off. But a lot of it's quite open. You can pee on lampposts to mark your territory. Right. Which is a way of controlling parts of the board. Because if another dog... How is this my job? If another dog goes uh, into a space that has a peed-on lamppost, they have to stop there because they find the smell so interesting that they end their movement there. So they stop, they sniff, and then next turn they can actually pee on top of that and they can replace that. But it's a way of slowing down other people and controlling territory. But also, you can only hold... You can only hold two pee tokens in your bladder at any one time, so you also have to fill up at fountains, which, of course, might be being blocked off by other players using their pee. <laughs> and you're con- you get hungry every turn, so as well as... Although you could, in theory, run around everywhere just trying to find bones in bins or whatever, you have to constantly try and get yourself food anyway by uh, doing things like delivering newspapers or begging for food. So you can't just run around uh, doing whatever you like. You have to constantly fill yourself up see what paths are open and what's being peed on and then occasionally be ready to just you know have a drink and pee on something just to to basically get past it and you've got these different things happening then you've got the dog catcher driving around town and everybody each turn you control that and you move it so people can try and move it towards you but then you can you can move it in a different direction and it's actually it's not it's not bad i feel like it was a mistake and i have two copies of this and i don't know why this is but i'll be bringing both of them to shucks for people to play i was just I about to hundreds suggest of people will will sit or however many people can borrow two copies at a time we'll sit down play it and go yes that was not bad <laughs> I was just listening to you uh, explain that and thinking that if you did nothing other than replace the dog miniatures with like other kinds of miniatures, you could retheme it perfectly as like a a game about playing like a really drunk biker gang. Like, because, you know, you'd you'd still like, you could still beg for food, pee on things, get into fights, yell at each other. I mean, mechanically, it all works fine. And then you've, that's that's you nailing the teenage market, you know. Not that sounded wrong. Uh, 
Because teenagers want to... I think there's other things teenagers want to do. They're not all violent and aggressive. Only about 80% of them are. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, Okay, so what... I I don't know. This is the part of the podcast where I'm supposed to ask you questions and I just don't know what to say. What are the... What's the... Are the dog miniatures nice? So the dog miniatures are... Yeah, they are good. And then your your art, because all the dogs have a different personality as dogs do. So you have like very pretty dog that is charming or you have like <laughs> rude boy dog that has a cap on sideways and chains. I'm sorry, what? that's what dogs do. Yep. And do you, do you see why playing this, you actually end up having a much better time than you would expect because it's ridiculous. And the, the theme, mechanically, the theme sort of makes sense. Yeah. And then you just end up having the stupidest conversations where you're like, oh, I can't go there because you peed there. And I can't do that myself because my bladder's not full. <laughs> it's just... And this, and you you know, if you're sat there and you want to play a game for 45 minutes and have some drinks with friends, it's actually quite good for that. Well, there you go. That's That was uh, that was a dog's life and quite a surprise. <laughs> so uh, sorry. Shoot. Should we? I, I would love to ask you uh, about a game that I was pretty excited about that I have a worrying feeling you won't think is as good as A Dog's Life, which would be a real death Ooh. knell. Uh, I thought Donna Dinner Party looked quite good when I saw the Kickstarter, I think it was. You know what? So I've played a couple of games of this now. I haven't made up my mind about this, and I think I, think I might need larger groups of people because I've played with about six people. But I got quite a good first impression from the the games I've had. I need to play this some more before I really work out what I think. Okay. But for a spin on the kind of game it is, uh, I I got a good first impression. The kind of game it is is almost a werewolf resistance mafia type thing. It's a game of hidden roles where most people are good people, but a couple of people around the table are bad people and they know who each other are. In this case, those people are cannibals. Okay. And what what cannibals want to do is uh, eventually uh, outnumber the other players around the table so that they basically gain control of this uh, stranded group of people who are in some mountains and can eat them or, you know, have their way with them. Initially, that doesn't happen because you might have like four four people who are not cannibals and two who are. But every turn you are drawing cards to hunt for food. If you draw enough cards to hunt for food to feed the party every turn, that's great. There's no excuse for cannibalism, so people just <laughs> feed, and it's fine. And you you might have, say, something like, I want to say it's six or seven turns, depending on the number of players. So if each turn everybody manages to get enough food, that's great. It's fine. Okay. The problem being that obviously the cannibals are interested in not doing that so they throw away cards in theory that have food on or they keep they also keep cards that are poison that poison the food supply <gasps> I got really excited which is interesting because you've got hidden rolls and then you don't know immediately which cards people are playing into this collective fool poo, uh, food pool every <laughs> round because there'll be a point where the party leader will reveal all the cards and be like ah we've only got five food this turn Oh, um, so is it like know, the who, um, uh, the Battlestar Galactica slash Dead of Winter yes. thing? Where yeah, so everyone puts a card in, and then you shuffle them, and then you flip them, and you go, someone put in a you know bone or poison, a, a poison or whatever. Or somebody put in medicine actually, and now all the poison is nullified. So that's great. Ooh. Yeah, because the leader every turn, whoever the leader is, and that rotates, can look at one other person's card, which uh, is almost always going to be whoever they're suspicious about at that moment. 
uh, and they can look at that before all the cards get pulled together and then they can make a claim and they can say, oh, this person is fine because they put in food or this person is bad because they put in poison. But obviously the leader could also be a cannibal. Okay, so it sounds uh, so, so far... So don't know where to trust them. Quite similar to the resistance. I'm not hearing anything uh, truly exciting about it yet. Well, this is what I'm not sure about, why I want to play more, because it it is thematically very very similar what i like about the slightly different mechanics are the food thing itself is kind of interesting and everybody can also have their own uh, special card which is an item which can be i think they're all one use and they're all like if this certain things happens then you you eliminate a player or you get to prevent something from happening that would usually happen so they're they're bumps in the road they're disruptor cards uh and the fact that as the game goes around, usually like a couple of players get eaten so that the, the dynamics change as well. There's usually a thing of like, well, we started with this many people on each team, but now that someone is out of the game, you know, the, the balance is fundamentally shifted. It can become a kind of a race against time. So I liked that. I liked that the the balance changes and obviously that it's in the interest of the cannibals to try to not eat other cannibals to make themselves uh you know more powerful as the game goes along so it's got that sliding scale kind of thing which is interesting and also uh i reckon i I don't know if this is a fantastic mechanic but because it's got player elimination (laughs) people who are knocked out are still allowed to sit at the table and be ghosts which means they can basically as long as they don't talk they can participate which usually involves like they make faces or you can have a, a rule, if you like, where they make a ghostly noise. Uh, and you can even cause them to scare other people into not voting on a round. If they, if they want to be out of the game entirely, they use their ghostly power to scare someone from not voting in player elimination moments, which is a bit sort of vague, but it gives them something to do. But do, do you maybe understand how I feel when I say, I don't know if I'm in love with this, but I do quite like it and I would definitely play it again because it has a new spin on an old dynamic. Yep, absolutely. I think um, uh, if people would like to look up this game, which is called Donna Dinner Party, um, then they can see it also has really quite nice art, um, yes. if, I, if memory serves. Um, I, but it just, yeah, I think it sounds like it's just um, one sort of really interesting mechanic away from being exciting. It just sounds like a bit of a... Uh, if it's a food item, then it sounds like more of a smorgasbord of mechanics that we know and like rather than a new exciting dish. Yes, I feel that way. And the thing is, if you already love The Resistance or if you already love Werewolf or One Night Werewolf, uh, I don't know if this will be different enough for you. And I, I feel out of that selection of games that maybe the One Night games, One Night Werewolf in particular, are probably still the best of this. Yep. Although, yeah, it's funny, you know, we got tired of playing these long games of Resistance and then we went and played One Night Werewolf and now I'm thinking, oh, well, The Resistance is pretty good. You know, The Resistance Avalon is such a classic bit of uh, nonsense I'm sorry I was going to say it still sells is the other thing people still talk about it and I still get people approaching me you know about it to say how much they like resistance and I think it it is providing you don't have too many people playing it I don't think it works for groups of like 8, 9, 10 um, it's good it's still good and I think it's just going to be around it's not going to go away yeah and you know what I'm so guilty of this that um, I will claim to be sort of like uh, you know fatigued by some board game or another (laughs) when I haven't actually explored everything it's got like I don't think I've played Resistance with all of the um, 
you know, uh, roll cards that come in the game. You know, your Oberon and your Puck. And your, I mean, the Puck's not a thing. That's from Midsummer Night's Dream. What is happening to my brain? Um, but we, yeah, you, you know, know, we could try this. We could try a different version of it where we invent slightly different roles. Oh, sure. Well, I mean, why would we bother when this is what bugs me about the resistance so much is that indie boards and cards invented so many silly things that they gave away, like lovely ideas for mechanics and twists on the game that they gave away as Kickstarter rewards, but that were never available um, outside of the Kickstarter, which is always such a bummer, especially for such a small game. I was sort of patiently waiting for the, that ultimate version of the Resistance, which puts in all of the ideas from all the versions of the Resistance, and it just never materialized. It, I felt like I was just being nickeled and dimed. Um, huh. But I feel like I complained about this about 40 podcasts ago. Um, so, uh, do you have anything else to say about Donna Dinner Party? Uh, no, not really, except I guess I need to at some point assemble eight or nine people, really get a big group and see how that affects those those scaling dynamics and those changing numbers. Sure, sure. Um, so I have been, let's talk about a game that I think might excite people a fair bit. Um, <gasps> people out there might be fans of Splendor. Um, and I have... Splendour. Splendor. Um, and th- uh, so this is a game where uh, a very simple game of um, collecting cards uh, one to four players sit around and have a sedate time either taking uh, a couple of or three different chips on their turn of different which are different gems and the chips have and I believe this is at least 50% responsible for Splendor's sales figures um, the chips have their weighted chips with sand in the middle so um, you know they feel nice to pick up so maybe on one turn you get a ruby and a sapphire and a diamond and then next turn you can cash in two of your diamonds to get a card which gives you a discount on all future diamond cards and uh, gradually you build up a dual empire from mines to trade routes to shops and it's nice and you have a nice time it's terrific Uh, it's really good you just you play quite efficiently um i am a fan of century spice road which is the game that came out recently um that uh that everyone thought would be a a sort of killer of splendor but that and while they're i think they're quite similar games i just frankly like holding splendor's chips more than i do um century spice roads cubes Um, But yeah, so they've released Cities of Splendor now, which is an expansion containing four modules, four different ways to play Splendor, um, which actually is a really cool way of doing a big box expansion for a very small, simple game, um, because people like Splendor being quite small and quite simple, and so... In Cities of Splendor, which is a big full-price box, like 25 or £30 pounds or whatever, uh, hey, you can play Splendor and the Orient, which gives you a really weird... It doubles the amount of cards you can buy, or you can play Splendor and the... But I'm going to look this up. Or you can play Splendor and the Cities, which uh, enables a player to instantly win if they collect a certain selection of cards. There's the Strongholds, which are little plastic things you move around the board. Basically, none of them make Splendor much more complicated really it's just like um for a game where you play it and it's nice cities of splendor allows you to play it and you go oh should we try playing it in a different way um and they all force players to like reconfigure their strategies a little bit it's just a really nice box it's like um rather than you know putting all the marbles in like splendor 1.5 in an expansion it's like no here's just four little splendor v1.2s you know does does this make sense well it does but then i'm Instantly, I want to ask, um, is there one of these that particularly stands out to you as being better than the rest? Because I I like the idea of uh, expansions that add different things that you can 
maybe optionally add in and you can add in some or all of those things this sounds like four like quite discrete different things you can do do you find already that like you just want to use one of them well i will say that i haven't played the strongholds yet which is probably the most interesting one where you actually move a plastic piece on them it turns splendor's grid of cards into something of a board that you can move a piece around so the geography of it becomes relevant um which i think is interesting but i will say that if you if you like splendor then you, you know what it's the most boring kind of expansion review um where if you like splendor you could buy cities of splendor it's quite good but if you don't like splendor it's not going to change your mind um yeah i always like when a publisher makes an expansion that's like really good or really not very good at all because then we can actually do our jobs as reviewers but this is just like it's more splendor um i like boxes i like inlays i like splendor and i've played a lot of it and i've not yet got bored of it so this will be on my radar well here's the thing here's the thing buddy if you're not yet bored of it do you need to spend 30 pounds on an expansion now uh it's a fair point the point is fair it's a fair point I mean, I guess one thing I would say is it doesn't feel truly extravagant. Like, it's almost there. And the art is really nice, honestly, throughout all the components. It's like, um, while they can't make the original game's art, which is a bit flat, um, any nicer, you know, they can keep it in the same style and make it a bit more extravagant. But, um, yeah... (laughs) You know, I don't know. I feel, um, I guess I feel I'm not the right person to have this box because Splendor I always quite liked, but it never excited me. So the idea of, you Ah. know, returning to a review with um, the expansion box is, uh, yeah. I don't know what to tell you, man. I don't know what to tell you. I I thought you had stronger feelings. Um, On the subject then of not knowing what to tell you, I want to talk a little about Unearth, if that is okay. So this is... A really wonderful kind of looking game. I really like the art style of Unearth before anything else. It has a particular kind of... There's something about the the art, the design, the simplicity of how this game looks that is immediately really appealing to me. It has a very distinct style. I think they've done a really good job with that. And that might immediately be biasing me in one direction more than the other. It's basically a kind of a card collection game that casts you in a sort of archaeological digging kind of role where you have dice that you roll that are like workers and you have a central pool of cards and if you can roll you roll these dice, place them upon cards and if you can hit certain numbers you can collect that card, uh, add that to your repertoire of things that you have and hopefully at the end of the game you'll have assembled a cool set of different cards that will score you points according to various criteria Okay, which... Like immediately, like when I describe this, I'm getting the feeling you're not hugely excited about that. Well, I think like a lot of people, I got excited about the art, which is this wonderful sort of Monument Valley-looking, um, colorful yeah. polygonal world. But I find that I'm a little colder than most people, and you know, I, my immediate next thought is that looks nice, but you know, what are we doing here? And I think if you describe the mechanics of Unearth to me, I wouldn't be excited. But this is it. I well, I mean, it's not that doesn't have to be hypothetical. I'm not excited, Paul. I'm not excited <laughs> right now. I I enjoyed it more than I expected to. Once I got my head around the rules, there's uh, an aspect of timing things correctly with other players, 
Uh, there are certain power cards you can play that let you do things like re-roll dice or roll more than one die. Um, and ro- obviously rolling die has an element of risk. You don't know what exactly what's going to happen, but you have an idea <laughs> whether you're going to hit or pass a number. Yeah. And so, you know, it's about where do you place your bets? What do you think you might be able to grab? Uh, is there a way you can upend somebody else's plans? And the fact that all your dice are not the same, you've got like a four-sided, an eight-sided, and the rest are six-sided, you know, that adds a bit more variation to what's happening. And we got to the end of the game, and I was like, that that's actually really quite good. I do want to play that again. But I also get the feeling next time I play it, it's going to go pretty similar to last time I played. And I've yep. said this a few times now in reviews, and I've said this, I think, in one or two podcasts, that... That that happens a few times now with games I play where I just get the feeling like mm, if I keep playing this, it's going to be largely the same every time I play, which is not inherently bad. But I think one of the things I most love about board games and board gaming is the feeling that games can have a very different kind of pace the next time we play or they can take a different direction that we didn't expect and that might be why i've always loved games that have lots of random generation or different maps or things like that because i feel they immediately exploit that yep absolutely i think it's funny because on the one hand um you know you could argue that it's silly for us to want games that are so different every time we play because realistically people who are really into the board gaming hobby will play their you know a given board game uh once a month if they're Many really times. you know lucky i was well, gonna play- say yeah you know we we but you have so many games that you end up playing them quite infrequently often so it's like well what does it matter if the game's the same if you only play it you know once every six months then that's fine isn't it because you'll have forgotten what it's like oh fair enough okay but the flip side of that i mean well no that's me taking devil's advocate but the the flip side of that is but unless you know that it's going to be different it's less exciting and you're going to be less likely to take it off the shelf right well it's I mean, even, again, I'm talking about chess again, but that's part of, I think, what so many people enjoy about chess and why it's been played so much over the years is people analyse games and they say, well, the opening of this was completely different and then everything went in a wholly unexpected direction and it's like, hmm, that's the same board, the same uh, 16 pieces and, you know, things go in, in wholly unexpected directions sometimes, which is fantastic. And I have also played... In the last few years, board games where, you know, the game has felt fundamentally too similar each time and it felt like the beats came at the same moment. Um, You know, the sort of things that happened were very similar and what was a surprise first time then just becomes a predictable thing every other time. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it's tricky, isn't it? It just comes down to what else exists in that price point, you know? Because Unearthed is what, like, you know, £20, $20, and it's a little half-hour game or something, right? It's a little smaller. It's a little... It's aiming uh, for a slightly cheaper price point, which is a good thing to do. But then, you know, this is a thing that I always loved about. The very first game we reviewed, which is Citadels, which I still play sometimes, is... It's actually just really small, and it was a small, cheap card game that was really portable, and there was enough variety and surprise and different things that happened with the rolls and the cards that I never got bored of it, and I still haven't. It's just still something that I like, even now. Yeah, or even just recently, you reviewed uh, Pit Crew on the site. We did a written review of that lovely little small box uh, card game, and... uh, that i feel like you know if you buy one game this month there's no way it's going to be unearth over pit crew is it i will definitely be playing pit crew again with different numbers of people in different combinations to you know to see how that goes down as well 
I mean, that's it. As soon as I found out that um, uh, uh, when you have um, enough people, uh, the hand of cards you have in pit crew is two each. That's just so yeah. absolutely laughable. You know, you end up you're going to be staring at the board, going, "When can I play my? You know, this one card I've got that's good. This one um, tire I've got. Yeah, please, if you haven't yet read our pit crew review on our site, please go and find it because it's ridiculously silly quite a good game in itself even if you don't have teams but then it becomes sillier once you have uh, one or two other people with you and in theory like you will be a pit crew fixing a car surely the more of you there is the better except <laughs> no because you just slap down the card into the fuel tank that completely stops somebody else from playing their card at all and you've just screwed the whole team and it's all in real time and you're watching other people do it much better than you and they just fix their car and they send it out the pits and then they're just rolling a die and moving it around the board while you flounder there god yeah i um uh, i really hope we see some uh, some nine player games of pit crew at shucks that would make me uh that would make me nice and happy i i will bring my copy along so there will be at least one copy of it present Man, I, I tell you, if we're talking about this, I have just for the last month. Whenever I receive games, now I'm like, mm, I could take that to Sharks because it's so close. Um, I received three Korean board games this week. Uh, one of which, Ooh. I mean, I, I'm just trying to figure out. Yeah, it is the worst game to play on stage, but I do want to like play it publicly or at least just give it to people so I can see it being played publicly. Um, which I believe is called something like Flip Flip Pancake. No, I'm. It's not called that. I'm getting that from <laughs> Tok Tok Woodman. But it's uh, <laughs> what you. I want to play Flip Flip Pancake, whatever that is. <laughs> okay, I well, play it's. It. Okay, it's now been dubbed that, so that's what we'll call it forever. But um, you have a, it comes with a big plastic frying pan, and then in it you put all of these ingredient tokens, which are like little pancakes that oh, have no. um, that have toppings on the top. And then oh, every, all the players around the table are expected to gaze into this pan and memorize what all the toppings are. And then the chef gets to tr- gets one flip with the pancake to try and flip as many tiles as they can face down, like you're flipping a pancake. And then in some kind of like. Uh, catering school slash hellscape slash fever dream the chef then points at a particular pancake and, uh, and asks the players like what's on this pancake and if a player can be like it's strawberries then they get that pancake otherwise the chef gets that pancake um, and the chef just wow. can, can, can continue to quiz people about what's that pancake I mean yeah I uh, I will be completely honest that there is a certain kind of board game which we think is really good but honestly only really comes to life at board game conventions where everyone is so committed to having fun and being idiots that uh, it's almost like a genre unto itself I think, the the incredibly stupid convention board game yeah, I, 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 I have to try this at some point, either, either we do it somewhere publicly at the con or we just, like, we break it out in a corner or something like, we, we have to I mean, what, just like, <laughs> we could do um, we could, you could have like flip flip pancake and I could have a dog's life and we go off into two corners of the convention and we see which of us can get a bigger crowd okay i want to quickly ask you if if you're interested in talking about uh, a feast for odin oh yeah we're very ru- quickly we're running a bit long but uh oh go on then because it's really good uh, yeah i finally played a feast for odin the um the behemoth of of the of the board the titan of the table that you reviewed earlier this year from uwe runners yes r- Uwe Rosenberg, designer of uh, Caverna and Agricola, um, and Le Havre, which we never reviewed. Um, and it's good, isn't it? It's his it's his Viking opus, and it's real good. 
Did you enjoy just like arranging bits of food and putting a shirt next to a chest of treasure for, for like no particular reason apart from it's a weird challenge? And then, yeah. like, what island did you find? Did you find an island? I did. I found, I want to say Greenland, um, which is big, wide open, empty spaces. Yeah, it was good. Uh, I, but what moments did I like? I liked when someone built a house. Which So the, the core of Feast for Odin is that you have a grid and you can acquire islands or houses which give you more grids. And then you have to get items which are used to fill in the grid. It's it basically, right? That's a, that's a charitably short description of it. Um, but uh, I loved um, people having meltdowns when they build houses and then realized that nothing big fits in the house. Yes. <laughs> like you buy a house and you go, oh, I'll fill that up with shirts. And then the shirt doesn't fit, Paul, because it's the wrong shape. And then you realize that if you go raiding and get like the English crown or a crucifix, that'll be great because it'll fit your house. This is the weird thing is I thematically I can't explain why you find an island and you're suddenly like right we're settling here and then you drag like all the weasel skins and stuff you have off the ship and just throw them on the ground everywhere but in a way that they like surround a bit of metal so that you also get that metal next turn. Yeah, it's uh, it's got some really delightful stuff. Like, I mean, it, I it, it was weirdly elegant in places whereby um rather than a board game saying like you can keep livestock but you cannot put livestock in your home. Um the game instead has no rule but the livestock uh, tiles are so big that they just don't fit in a home. Uh so you know, you which immediately brings to mind like your viking trying to push a cow into their house but the cow will not go in. Uh it's just yeah. it's re- it's really good. It's really uh, generous the art is lovely the decks of cards so that as you were saying earlier every game is different are really um are just enormous like it's exactly the same as agricola i think in that uh, the game begins with every player being given a card of like which we joked was like your dad coming down and saying now son you're gonna work as a you know a, a rock breaker yeah. or a pillager or yeah. a, a sheep fiddler or whatever you know and you're like dad i don't i don't want to do this then it was funny because when we sat down all of us wanted to do certain things like different aspects of the game whether it was raiding or farming or shepherding you know really appealed to us but then we all drew a card and we were all going oh my dad wants me to do this um (laughs) it it was it was just frankly it was basically a delight um your review was spot on it's just it's really good it's the kind of heavy complicated game that makes you remember why you love heavy complicated games yeah it it never gets too obtuse at the same time i think and it it doesn't it has a lot going on but none of it ends up being too deep or too complicated and i really appreciate that as well yeah yeah it's just good and it has actually something that i recognize from um agricola and caverna where it's only like a seven or eight turn game and then in the first turns you achieve so little that it's really exciting because you're going what how how on earth am i gonna you know fill greenland or how am i gonna build a house or whatever but then because your engine ramps up exponentially um in the final turns, you're getting so much stuff. Like, you know, that, that shirt yeah. maker you got in turn two shows up and says, I've made you seven shirts and you just don't have anywhere to put all your shirts. Uh, that kind of thing, which means that the early turns are exciting and the later turns are exciting as well. Like there's a real arc to a game where the game just speeds up. And just as the turns are getting exhausting, the game ends. That That is exactly right. And I actually find that really satisfying. Just, um, you know, the, the momentum that you gain and you watch the thing that you put together work for you. Yeah, it's. I think you're right that it is... Well, I personally feel that it's the best Uwe Rosenberg game I've played. But what's really heartening is that it's... It, 
you know, Caverna and Agricola were quite similar, you know, games of building fences and homes. Uh, but this, the mechanics in it are like nothing we've seen before. You know, this grid-based Tetris, <laughs> Viking house Tetris, you know, is what you could call it. And we've not seen a design like that ever, which is so great that one of the greatest, you know, design living board game designers is still coming up with new ideas. How exciting is that? That that is really interesting, and he. I mean, I want to see what what is next. He's got this um, Nordic fjord fishing thing that he teased a few weeks ago, uh, and I'm very very yes. interested to see how that turns out. Yeah, uh, we'll find out, I suppose. Although it's funny how um, uh, a feast for Odin was uh, such a big, exciting game that uh, it was its arrival was heralded by like two th- other UA Rosenberg games, or possibly three. I should be saying Uve as well. Pronunciation is incorrect. I'm sorry, um, but yeah like it was such a big complicated design that he designed three smaller games like cottage garden and patchwork on the way to releasing feast for odin that were inspired by the mechanics um yeah yeah so i feel like the next maybe that means that the next really really great uvo rosenberg game will come about we'll know it's coming because he'll start releasing all these smaller games with weird mechanics we've not seen before or maybe this fjord game will be really good uh well i i am i am excited and interested i was about to say it's like a, a meteor hitting the planet. The fact that it probably won't all come at once. There might be a few smaller bits of meteor <laughs> that hit first. Then the main one strikes, uh, and we have to be Bruce Willis, and we have to go on that meteor and drill into it. And <laughs> wait, that doesn't work. It's a very heavy box, though. It's got more punch board than... I've never felt so intimidated opening a box as I did with Feast for Odin. Possibly because you've been getting all the really big intimidating boxes recently. Uh, yeah, a few, which is something I might talk about in the next podcast. But that that's all I'm going to say. Shall we uh, scurry onward to some interesting correspondence? Put your hand in my mailbag Funny letter So we have a letter here from uh, Jan. I'm pretty sure I'm pronouncing that correctly. It's probably impossible to announce this wrong based on how it's spelled. Um, it's short, but it, no, it's just... It, wait, bear with me. It's a short but interesting question, which we pondered over earlier, and I'm actually stuck with. He says, Hi, folks. I have a question I'd like to run past you. I'm putting together an introductory course on board game design. It's going to be online, mostly video-based. That wasn't the question. That was the context. The question is this, he says... I think it's a he. I'm sorry if that's incorrect. Uh, what are what one area of board game design do you wish new designers were introduced to? Big fan, love the things, keep up the good work. Sincerely, Yan. Which one area of board game design do you wish more designers were introduced to? I find questions like this really hard immediately because you have to get like specific right away and you have to throw everything else out and you have to needle that one point and i i don't know if i can do you have an answer to this you gave me an answer before we started recording but while you trying to remember i know what i know what i said i just don't know if it's the right answer what i said was <laughs> okay, okay. i really like stuff that has bluffing dynamics in and i like stuff that has incomplete information where you can pretend to have something you don't or you might have a bunch of people around the table and you know what some of them have, but you don't know what others have. And immediately this is going to remind people of like either poker or hidden role games or 
uh, you know, any variation thereof. And you can do this in Euro games. You can do it in what some people call Ameritrash games. You can do it in card games. You can do it in party games. You know, it's kind of what Two Rooms and a Boom is, basically, which we, we love, is this game of walking around pretending you do or don't know who other people are. Uh, and th- this is one of my favorite mechanics. Is it the, the main thing? I don't know, but it's it's a favorite mechanic. I mean, it certainly powers um, a a not inconsiderable amount of... um some, not just some of our favourite games, but some of the the best selling games. Like uh, we said earlier, that Netrunner, a game of hidden information, uh, didn't sell that well. But the X Wing Miniatures game does, and that's a game of players simultaneously revealing their secret dials. Um, of course, yeah. the Resistance and Werewolf are some of the most popular board games ever made. Poker, maybe the most popular board yeah. game in the world, it, or you know, table game, is all about hidden information. Um, so yeah, maybe that is like if maybe if you only learn about one sort of area of design, maybe it should be hidden information. Um, I think it's a good answer. I think it's. Uh, I think it sounds like oh yeah, that's a small, cute bit of board games. But actually, I think it might be. It might be everything. There's there's a lot there, and some games have it, some games don't. But it can be used in different ways. It can be used as talking about like what a player's role is, or you know, what their special power is, or the things that they currently have, or uh, you know, the the way even that player's power in the way that they change the game for other players. I. I don't know. I think it's a thing to definitely think about. But what would your answer be? Oh well, I will just chip in and add to your sort of um, your, your your pyre of of you know, like bonfire of of, of information t- uh, by saying, uh, "Hey, that that analogy didn't work." Um, I'm I'm surprised by a couple of instances of hidden information that. Um, that aren't used as, as much as uh, they could be. I'm thinking specifically about the variant in the back of Cosmic Encounters Manual where players only reveal their alien's power when they use it for the first time. Yes. Um, which tends to just be really quite delightful. Maybe not for like... Well, no, yeah. no. It, it, I, I was going to say for eight-player games, but no, then that actually gives players a reason to interact with someone at the end of the table if you can listen to them reveal their alien power. Um, I'm also reminded of all the auction games that say in the manual, uh, well, you can never... Be, like, if your amount of money is hidden, if no one knows how much money you have, a lot of auction games will say, and players cannot bid more than they have money, um, which... I always think is designers like failing to do something exciting because isn't it I think there are a couple of games that let you do it but where um, if you're doing a blind auction I can drive up the bidding to make you pay more but I can make bids that uh, uh, amount to like money that I don't have and if you think I'm doing that you can let me win and then I can be penalised massively which I think happens in Cyclades or Cyclades however you pronounce it um I don't know, but I think it happens in another couple of games. It becomes, uh, I, I like it, it becomes a mini game within the game because you have players stirring the pot who potentially, you know, could get themselves in trouble themselves. They can trip themselves up and it can be a chance for other people to, you know, grab them and uh, embarrass them or, or not. Maybe it's something that you will get away with and no one will ever know. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly a uh, a delightful mechanic of not just giving players a means of, like, sort of uh, trolling other players, which is, uh, you know, a staple of every family game, but giving those players the ability to sort of get their own back on the troll by inflicting some terrible, terrible, um, you know, punishment in-game is uh, is always fun. Uh, yes. Not least because I think trolls like getting... Trolls quite trolls tend to just enjoy stirring the pot and being the centre of attention, and that, if that means, you know, making themselves look silly, then that's usually fine too. 
Um, so my answer for what one area of board game design do I wish more designers were introduced to is less interesting than yours. I would just say standing out. Um, and I say this because, my God, you would not believe how many emails go into contact at Shut Up and Sit Down of people asking me to look at their game and it looks identical to other family game uh, family games other fantasy games never get families and fantasies mixed up they're almost the opposite <laughs> things um or you know look at my game with like sci-fi aliens or it's like the thing you know the movie the thing it's like yeah there's yeah there's <laughs> there's a lot of board games that do this um and it routinely like we are seeing you know every week we see a board game that has a theme which we've never seen before there is a bottomless pit of themes just in the news on monday we had consentical uh a game about having sex with an alien your board game doesn't have to be that but i'm my point is uh i don't know what my point is my point is that there is a bottomless pit of themes and you don't have to do orcs you don't have to do fantasy you don't have to do dragons because yeah i mean the the most important thing if any board game probably is that people play it because if they don't play it it's kind of like you never made it in the first place yeah um and such a big part of that is standing out and so i think just i mean if if board game designers are really sold on their design and the rules of their game great but just dress it up differently if you want it to to really be played you know if you're going to do a fantasy world do a different kind of fantasy world do an unusual one or better yet don't do fantasy at all this is yeah i mean i i entirely agree and i don't want to dissuade anybody from trying to make things or you know having an idea and trying to put it out there but at the same time the amount of times i get offered what is basically a trick taking card game and the amount <laughs> think i see these all the time they get offered to me all the time and everybody seems to want to make their slightly different spin on them and often you can see the skeleton underneath where they basically it is a game they designed where they started with a deck of 52 cards and they've sort of slightly rethemed things and that's probably about kind of it and you are playing a different game you are playing an original game but it's like you have seen everything that is in it before and it's all just very slightly rearranged and i don't i don't want to stop people from making trick taking games with a trick taking mechanic because they might come up with a really good spin on it but if you do want to do that do come up with a really good spin on it because otherwise there's like <laughs> 14 billion of them now yeah i mean even just practically speaking if you are showing off your game at a convention or on the internet um and i don't know you make something like you know flip flip pancake or you make something <laughs> like um the game that stuck in our head more than anything after the uk games expo this year which was a game called call of the wild which is a party game where you have to um talk about uh, why the animal that you chose would win a certain olympic event like jousting or you know what here's why yes. a chameleon would win wrestling uh, with a dog um but the point is that that then sticks in my head and it sticks in the head of everyone everyone go oh did you see the animal game did you see the pancake yeah. game and people go yeah. yes no what is it um if your game is is uh, generic fantasy then it's if i say if you tell me did you see the orc game i'm gonna go which one of these thousand orc games are you talking about the game with the swords okay that you go away you're not useful to anyone right now so basically we're telling people to make a trick-taking card game about swords no no okay i've missed no, the point of no what that's, of that's what basically tarot isn't it <laughs> I, I don't know you've got the five of swords it means that you're gonna be very gassy this week <laughs> 
Oh, this we've we've run long. We've run long. What's a feel good thing that we should talk about? Will this be the last? No, we should record a pre shuck special. That's what we should do. So oh, this won't be the last right. podcast before the inaugural shut up and sit down convention. We'll do. We'll squeak okay. in one then. I okay. think. We should wrap this fella up. Uh, if you would like to know what's coming in the next 30 days for Shut Up and Sit Down, what games we're excited about, what we're going to be reviewing, all of that will be in the donor newsletter. If you jump on Shut Up and Sit Down in the next uh, couple of days and chuck us a dollar or a couple of dollars, uh, then not only will you be contributing to the site existing and spreading the love and um, uh, the and dogs, dogs and Donna dinner parties and God knows what else, uh, dogs then uh, you'll be you'll also get a newsletter and it's got uh, we were talking about books sometimes or what's what is on our mind or what games are on our mind or, or what books are on our games um that doesn't make any sense goodness me i'm gonna order a pizza that's what i do when i stop making sense because i, I I'm boy, need now. a treat it's morning over there you're not allowed to have pizza that's not a morning food i'm gonna make pancakes i'm gonna actually play a real game of flip flip pancake now oh snap yeah <laughs> thank you very much for listening everybody and we'll thank be back you. with a with a pre-shuck special probably recorded live <gasps> in vancouver maybe i don't know <laughs> 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 goodbye everybody <laughs> <laughs>